Hello and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, a podcast where I sit down with anyone who dedicates their lives to protecting, researching and documenting nature. I talk to them about their work in a range of areas such as wildlife conservation, ecology, human and wildlife coexistence and worldwide environmental issues. For today's coffee feature, I'll be talking about Ecoa Coffee. Listen to the end to find out more. In this episode, I talk with Lola Karp. Lola is a media and communications officer for the Indigenous Rights NGO Survival International. We talk about the importance of decolonising wildlife conservation, how Indigenous people suffer in the name of protecting animals, why international NGOs such as WWF have a lot to answer for, and much, much more. I do hope you can all listen and learn from this episode. However, I do have to place a content warning on this for the very first time, as during the episode we do briefly mention some very upsetting topics. If you're listening to this and you're under the age of 18, or you think you might be uh, upset by some of the themes mentioned, please feel free to drop me a private message and I can talk sensitively about the sort of words we use in the episode, uh, or preferably I'd really like you to go and find a parent or guardian if you're uh, under the age of 18 just to listen through the episode or or maybe give me a message and just see if you feel like it's age appropriate for you. Hi Lola, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. I know you've been trying to arrange this with someone from Survival for a while, which um, is great that we finally managed to do it after a few logistics issues. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I've wanted to talk about the work of Survival on here for for so so long and I had something similar last year but it kind of didn't didn't probably pan out the way I'd hoped but mm. we'll start things off by getting to know you a bit could you tell us a bit about you and how you got your start at Survival International? Yeah so um, I um, I studied international development and French at uh, Sussex University I graduated in 2019 and um, and I, I also did a, a study abroad year in France with that. But I was um, like within the degree of international development, we were doing quite a lot on um, indigenous rights. And so, um, yeah, I, I would, I'd actually been a supporter of survival for over 10 years by the time I joined in 2020. Um, so I was already aware of like their, their campaigns and their work um, with indigenous peoples around the world. And then, yeah, I got the job at Survival just before the end of um, January 2020. So it was just before the pandemic. And um, yeah, that was obviously so lucky to get the um, job when I did. And now I do media and communications for Survival, which is basically social media, um, like traditional uh, press and journalists, but also like digital um, and then also, of course, lots of admin. Uh, and a lot of it is like trying to kind of translate the complexity of our campaigns and messaging into uh, like accessible ways of understanding it and like bites for the press and public. So, yeah. So I, I have to kind of understand the campaigns quite well and then also think about how people, how other people are going to understand them, which is a bit of a challenge, but it's good, good fun. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I think, yeah, I kind of not quite the same role at all, but I know um, what you mean about the challenging aspects of that. I, I briefly worked yeah, as a face-to-face yeah. fundraiser for Greenpeace 
um oh, which yeah. is quite, quite a um difficult job to try and yeah have to memorize so many um sort of bites of information and and give them repeatedly to sort of you know 80 people a day roughly um mm, out in the street yeah but, I can uh, so I kind, of, I kind of know where you're coming from with that and yeah, yeah. it doesn't um it's quite a challenge I yeah, I've been following Survival International for a long time um I think probably since about 2015 which oh, obviously okay. means that you know you and whoever came before you were doing a really good job because I've always been engaged <laughs> with your campaigns um yeah. but for my listeners who kind of haven't been following their work could you just give mm. the the blurb the brief overview of, of who they are mm-hmm. why they exist and yeah that's uh, what sort of yeah. work you're you're doing at the minute yeah so um we're, so survival works in partnership with tribal peoples and indigenous peoples around the world in lots of different countries basically to amplify their voice and their the struggles that they're facing and kind of offer them a platform to speak to the world but particularly western audiences and western governments um and we have a lot of long-standing relationships with a lot of these tribes and like indigenous groups so we're in contact with them they contact us um, and we try and amplify their struggles and the struggles are mainly around land and land rights because that is the basis of their life and livelihoods for most indigenous peoples whether whether or not they're fully integrated into society or they remain quite isolated land is still a major issue for them uh, and we do a lot of kind of raising awareness about indigenous rights and their human rights. Um, but also we kind of conduct quite a lot of like investigations um, uh, into what what's happening with them and kind of really documenting and exposing human rights abuses that they're facing or like atrocities committed against them. And with this information, we do a lot of lobbying governments um, so we actually we reject money from governments we don't we don't get any money from any like formal governments or anything it's all donations um but yeah i'd say the main the main two things are kind of raising awareness and also act like concrete lobbying yeah yeah that's a that's a perfect answer i think hopefully my aim obviously apart from communicating the issues we want to talk about is to try and get more people to know about survival and support them if they don't already because i think there's so many um organizations that could be called conservation organizations that mm. completely just disregard indigenous rights yeah and i think it's it's important that survival do you know the work you do is is both looking after people and planet and and that's kind yeah. of what the podcast is all about so um should have yeah. had you in episode one last year a couple of years ago <laughs> Um, oh we made it now don't worry (laughs) so there's a lot of campaigns that we could talk about we could literally Mm. have an entire podcast just on all the campaigns not let alone an episode um but i think the most important one to discuss today especially Mm. with my podcast in particular is about decolonizing conservation so at at its core the conservation that a lot of us think about we think we know so a lot of especially people like me who's grown up in you know southeast England and mm. I'm white and just very yeah. raised on a heavy diet of um <clears throat> sorry raised on a heavy diet of sort of David Attenborough and Jane Goodall yeah. and people like that <laughs> yeah. um 
as I'm sure many, many people are, um, that kind of conservation, as we know, has historically prioritised pristine mm -hmm. wilderness and, and profits over Indigenous peoples and their rights. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me what the concept of decolonisation means and why it's so important for or anyone to, to be backing it, really? Yeah, um, well, I think you just described it really well. And also just to say that I was, before I joined Survival, I was very much also in a similar, um, I don't know, like a product of, yeah, where I'd grown up. And, you know, I, I was even <laughs> WWF supporter when I was a child, um, obviously not anymore. But yeah, so I, I think decolonizing conservation is really about like, kind of radically rethinking the way that we practice conservation and you kind of touched on like the historical aspect which I think is probably the central aspect of any like decolonization that, that anyone's doing it's it basically means that you have to learn about like the racist and colonial history um, of conservation you know its involvement in eugenics how it was basically founded on like stealing the land of indigenous peoples and for example in the US and Canada with national parks like Yosemite and um, yeah it, it, it displaced them and it, it was violent towards them and basically I think decolonizing it is like understanding this and also who was behind it and how this is who was behind it who was perpetuating it and like how it's ongoing today and you mentioned also the fact that you're white and I think that's like a very important point because it's this is quite uncomfortable work I think a lot of it it's not mm. these aren't the most comfortable conversations to have about privilege and kind of who who shaped the conservation movement as it is today and how we as activists and environmentalists are participating in it but it is very very necessary work if we want to kind of move forward and fight these injustices like the climate crisis um but i do think it is yeah it's primarily about anti-racism and kind of being active as a white westerner like in how we can undo this um and it's also not really it's not for indigenous peoples to teach us all of this like we've got to do the work ourselves um and yeah i think it's really important because um if we want to fight the climate crisis if we want to uh, kind of save the planet then we absolutely need indigenous peoples to be like steering the helm um i mean everyone well i hope most people know not everyone does know but i'm sure many of your listeners know that like they are obviously facing the worst impact but they are the best conservationists and like their territories um protect 80 percent of the world's biodiversity and that's like a figure that we band around a lot at survival but it's it's a very important one because it's just it just shows you that like you cannot you just cannot do any climate work without indigenous peoples being central in that um and yeah so i think that basically we we really need to kind of look at the history of what's been going on and and also how it's continuing today which i'm sure we'll get into later because yeah i think it's i think it's about historical justice as you were saying and um yeah and and also w one more thing i would add is just that i think a lot of it is a lot of the way conservation is practiced today is a bit of a distraction from like other key issues such as kind of reducing emissions in the west and our own consumption and so i think decolonizing conservation is like um just kind of 
kind of refocusing on like what's important and yeah and how we can get there yeah yeah it's so important to say because i think it's it's i i see a lot of my uh peers so i'm doing a very wildlife and and nature focused uh degree it's um marine and and natural history photography so oh, it's kind of quite um, uh, it's a falmouth university in cornwall Oh, amazing. Um, so it's an incredible degree, but because of yeah. how it's taught and the, um, or how most of it's taught and the kind of uh, sort of, even though it's quite different and you can really go on to do anything from the course, mm. um, there is quite a strong uh, Falmouth BBC Natural History Unit pipeline or Falmouth mm. to WWF yeah. pipe, pipeline. There's a lot of graduates who have gone on to work. Um, all around the world and I see a lot of my peers on the course I'm in second year at the minute completely uh, you know really wanting to go and work with these big organizations wanting to travel to um, you know African countries or, or travel to US mm -hmm. national parks and mm -hmm. but without any form of idea or, or just any education at all about yeah. what that means or how they can you know still go there and tell the stories they need to with by uh, um while still respecting the peoples who who's who should uh not always do but should um be stewards of the land yeah definitely and so i think it's yeah i'm, I'm really hoping i'm going to push this quite strongly in my um among my course because i think especially people who yeah. are planning to go into this industry um you really need a good amount of education on the subjects mm -hmm. otherwise you just can't you know effectively well, tell the stories doing this podcast because it's like it's got to come from us you know as in as i was saying before obviously you know many indigenous peoples want to talk about what's going on with them but it shouldn't be down to them solely to like teach everyone else you know we've got to do it ourselves so that's why it's great that you're thinking about this yeah exactly and i think i mean talking of Obviously, I would love to get, I'm hoping to still get um, someone from an Indigenous community on the podcast. I tried to, mm -hmm. I was connected with um, Charles Nsonkali from the Baka tribe in Cameroon last year. Um, yeah. And I'm sadly due to like, quite a lot of logistical issues and, and connection issues, you know, he was, he was quite deep in the jungle at that point. Yeah. So he didn't really have um, good Wi-Fi and he was fighting... Uh, ongoing legal battles and land evictions um, mm. we couldn't really make it work into a kind of full cohesive episode so I'm really yeah. hoping that that will be a thing in the future but yeah. for now just um, for the sake of getting this information out as quickly as possible would you mm. be able to explain the a bit about the Baka tribe situation yeah. from survival's perspective and yeah. um, kind of use the um, use the, they've been through quite a lot of traumatic events and, and how can that be used as a case study to educate people about um, the wider abuse of local people in the name of conservation? Yeah, um, great question. Um, so the Baka, I, I'll just go from the beginning in case people aren't aware of who they are, but the Baka are a tribe who live um, in the forests of Cameroon, um, the Republic of, of Congo and um, Gabon and also Central African Republic. So um, there's kind of like large swathes of forest that kind of cross boundaries across these countries and they've lived in these forests for millennia. Um, and we've worked particularly on an area of land called Mesok Jar, 
which is very rich in biodiversity and this is this belongs to the back of this land but it's been designated a national park and i think that's an important distinction to make that like this is just their land but other people have said this is a national park this is a conservation zone um and so this this national park has been managed by um wwf uh with the support of local governments but also funding from like the eu the un the us government has given them funding the uk government has given them funding they get donations from the public like you know as i said when i was a child i was i think i was donating to them so yeah this is kind of um socially acceptable um, money that they are receiving to run this national park um and the main issue is that they're funding park rangers who whose job it is to patrol the area and basically keep people out. Um, but these rangers uh, are given a very like militarized form of training. You know, they're, they're given guns, they're given like just a lot of money and like to, to kind of, yeah, police the area. Um, and they, they commit abuses against local people. So like really, really serious stuff. Like, you know there's harassment there's intimidation but then there's literally beatings torture rapes killings like it's really really serious and you know the local backer have complained but no one does anything and wwf are absolutely complicit in this because they've known about the fact that these abuses have been going on um but they've done nothing about it and even even gone as far as to blame it on kind of Afri the African governments that they work with and kind of saying, oh, it's them, it's they're corrupt and which is a really racist way of approaching it, you know, just blame it on the kind of corrupt African government. Um, but we know that they were aware of it because there's been, uh, there's been like investigations that have come out um, and, you know, even recently, a few months ago, it was, I actually think it was at the end of last year, there was a hearing uh, in the US, a congressional hearing with Democrats and Republicans who were giving money to WWF. And they heard like evidence of kind of these abuses and were kind of completely outraged at how no official from WWF had lost their job over it or, you know, had stopped it from happening. Um, and they've had their funding pulled from many different places as well. So that's basically the situation um, with the backer. But as you said, and well, as you asked in your question, it's not it's not an isolated example. It's and it's not just with WWF. It's actually very systemic um, across the conservation industry. And yeah, I can I can list like so many other examples, but I'll just give you a few others. Um, so across Asia, there have also been like similar situations. So in um, Chitwan National Park, which is in Nepal, WWF work there as well, as well. And there's been loads of violence towards the local tribe, the Chepang. Um, and even a 24-year-old guy in 2020 was like literally shot dead by WWF funded rangers for collecting snails which is just crazy like he was literally on his land collecting snails and he was killed um because of this policy of like no people allowed here um and and because he was kind of viewed as an intruder and a poacher or whatever um 
And then, you know, in India, there's also like uh, in, for example, in Kaziranga National Park, that's another one where WWF works, but also the WCS, the Wildlife Conservation Society. And um, the rangers that they trained were even kind of given an approach which was like shoot on site. They were literally told that they could shoot anyone on site that they saw in the park. And they, they've shot people before. There was like a seven year old boy who was like really badly wounded by park rangers. Um, so yeah, it's happening in Asia as well as Africa. And then yeah, other parts of Africa such as Kenya, there's like a lot of stuff going on there with conservancies, which I don't know if if people know kind of what a conservancy is but it's like another form of a conservation zone but usually managed by an individual landowner or like a corporate body basically but less of like an NGO managed kind of area and there's been like local Kenyan tribes that have experienced like torture and evictions and murders and stuff so it's it's really serious like human rights abuses and I I still astounded by the fact that like you know WWF gets all this public money and has got such a kind of shining re- reputation still and they're involved in these human rights abuses so yeah it's it's very systemic. Mm. Yeah that was a that was a really perfect answer I think um kind of sums up everything that I needed it to um, because it's I, I'm hoping everyone knows what a conservancy is because actually quite ironically I one of my early episodes was with a uh, a ranger from the a conservancy in Kenya mm. um, mm-hmm. uh, talking about what uh, you know northern white rhino conservation and, and human wildlife um, sort of mitigating human wildlife con- conflict so very mm. kind of different approach and something I wasn't fully aware of all of the Mm. facts around um you know big conservation um I I just wasn't aware of any of it really um when I did that episode so it was a very different approach which is it'd be quite interesting to go back and actually Mm -hmm. talk to talk to somebody on the ground there now um yeah well they they do such a great job of kind of covering it up as well I mean during the WWF investigation they hired a reputation management firm like that blows my mind that they didn't they didn't first of all they didn't speak to any of the affected like backer or Mm. you know tribes they didn't speak to any of them but they and they didn't get anyone you know trained in human rights they literally got a reputation management firm so I think that says it all really about like why we all know so little about this I mean, yeah, one hundred percent. We have uh, we're quite far away from pr- pretty much anywhere down in Falmouth, um, but we've got you know um, one of the UK's smallest cities, Truro, right around the corner, and so we do actually have in. I think he alternates between Falmouth and Truro, um, but we have a WWF rep who goes to a market on Tuesdays and Saturdays, um, right. and probably one of the only. I feel like he's one of the only reps. I feel slightly sorry for him because he's one of the only reps from a big organisation like in the entire county. Like I've never seen anyone yeah. from like Greenpeace doesn't operate down here, a Survival oh, doesn't wow. operate down here. Like anyone um, who would out be out on the street doesn't really do anything. And yeah. I had a chat to him a few months ago. I haven't spoken to him since. Um, he tried to recruit me because obviously that's his job, um, <laughs> and I kind of said a i'm a poor student b no and here's why and he just he was either a very very good liar or just had no idea 
said he'd been working yeah. at WWF for 20 years and had zero idea. And yeah. I actually believe that more than I believe that he was lying. Because I yeah. think that even people working for them for, you know, mm-hmm. several decades probably don't know about this stuff because they're so good at, at hiding it. Yeah, definitely. I think I think it is a mixture of people. I think people. some people know what they're doing and other people are completely like oblivious and mm. ignorant to it. And that's that's also really scary. Like, you know, that people in an organisation like WWF that have so much power and responsibility don't know what they're doing. Like, that freaks me out. <laughs> so it's great that you were able to engage with him on that and like kind of talk about it. I hope that he went away and just did some research yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I definitely hope so too and talking of um that style of conservation sort of fortress conservation um which we'll go into in a minute last autumn i think it was uh survival held the our land our nature conference um i believe it was in was it in france yeah it was in say. marseille in france um, yeah yeah, so that was kind of a, an alternative to the annual conference hosted by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, IUCN, mm-hmm. which yeah. all of my listeners will be aware of. They'll yeah. have known it. Um, I've, you know, cited it uncountable mm-hmm. number of times because they're the organisation or the, or the body re- uh, responsible for things like the red list of species and the kind of mm-hmm. you know, managing yeah. endangered species and all that. Um, mm-hmm. What they're doing currently, for my listeners who don't know, is calling for 30% of the world to be protected by 2030, which on mm-hmm. paper does seem amazing. It's mm-hmm. like, wow, we're going to, you know, that's a, a huge amount of land and ocean that will be preserved for, you know, wildlife and biodiversity to flourish. But uh, you, uh, survival, think that it's, you know, it's not such a great idea. It's a pretty major yeah. issue that could and already has i think led to increased levels of harsh violent fortress conservation could you kind of explain what that term means and what alternative models you know should and could be explored yeah so um yeah fortress conservation is basically the idea that you have to separate um nature from people and that the two can't coexist together so it's kind of anti-people we say um and as you mentioned before it's kind of founded on this myth of wilderness wilderness and that that does bring me back to what we were saying earlier about like this colonial mindset it's literally like going into a place and saying there are no people here and then just carving it up um so yeah, I do think that it, fortress conservation really values wildlife above humans, um, which is just totally stupid because humans are the ones who have actually shaped and managed and like protected the land. And it's a really colonial kind of racist mindset to think that we know better than them. So, um, yeah, it feels like either it's it's kind of denying the existence of people in the area, which we do see a lot that people are like, no, there's no one here. And actually we see it quite a lot in Brazil to use another example that often the Brazilian government, I mean, they've got their completely own fascist agenda towards indigenous peoples and human rights, but they will often claim, no, there's no indigenous people living here in this area. So, so it's either kind of that aspect or it's saying no we're aware of local people but they don't know how to look after the land we know better than them um which i think is really obviously false i mean look at how we're looking after the land we're in this mess with the climate crisis because of our behavior because of the way the western world has kind of 
um, interacted with the environment. Um, so yeah, and, and obviously uh, fortress conservation, you see this model of conservation in national parks, we see it in protected areas and tiger reserves. And, and we're not saying like that we shouldn't try and protect and conserve nature. Like we, we often, survival often gets kind of, and well, like com people kind of comment on the campaign or they kind of level this, I guess it's an insult, but it's a fair enough question. And like, are you anti-conservation? Are you anti-nature? But we're absolutely not. Like we're saying that humans shouldn't be excluded from nature and that they, that indigenous peoples can like are the best stewards because they've been doing it for centuries. So if anything, I think we're like, you know, very much pro nature because we know that people can look after it the best. Um, and yeah, so you obviously, you said about the Our Land, Our Nature conference, which um, was, yeah, a really like important opportunity to get indigenous peoples to kind of tell the world what their experiences were. Um, and yeah, I, I just think like once we understand the kind of model of fortress conservation, you start to see it like everywhere. You know, you see it in the organisations that we've been discussing and and really a lot of mainstream conservation organisations like the Nature Conservancy as well, Con Conservation International. We You mentioned David Attenborough, like Leonardo DiCaprio, the Royals, like it's very much like culturally and socially ingrained in our, into our society. But um, but like what mainly concerns us is these like policies that governments are coming up with as we move into a kind of more serious situation with fighting climate change. Um, so policies like 30 by 30, which you mentioned, and also um, nature based solutions to climate change. That's something that we've been working on more and more at Survival. Um, and especially I think nature based solutions is a, is a really kind of really important one at the moment of which 30 by 30 is kind of a offshoot of that by the way um because yeah like for example at cop 26 it was absolutely everywhere like you couldn't turn a different way without seeing nature-based solutions plastered over like everything um and it's quite insidious that one as well because it, again as you say it sounds really good but actually it it really relies on kind of these really disputed uh, techniques or like kind of policies and projects like protected areas which which have a history of like serious human rights abuses that no one has really done that much to acknowledge or tackle and then stuff like carbon offsetting which is just so dodgy I mean basically kind of a lot of how it works is like just parachuting into different forests lands different places in the global south and saying okay this is going to be used for carbon offsetting for a rich company that is literally trashing the environment like you know wwf partner with coca-cola ikea um h&m like the boston consulting group who's a consultation firm that does consulting for like oil and gas and aviation and arms and stuff so like all of that when, when you start to like put all of it together it's just so dodgy like that you would kind of kind of go into these areas which are which belong to other people and then kind of take over the area evict the local people like enact violence on them and then pass it off as something that's green and good for like the western world basically or just the world in in the fight against climate change so 
yeah, I think, I think what you were, yeah, I think basically understanding the model of fortress conservation, like understanding how it works is, is just really important because then you can see that it really underlines a lot of these like seemingly kind of good policies and other stuff that is coming from governments and NGOs and stuff. So, yeah. Mm, yeah, I think, I mean, I really like the way um, I was hoping you would bring this up, but the, your previous answer to the, the, the last question, um, you mentioned, you called conservation an industry which I really liked because, I mean, it's kind of, it, it's very true. And we all kind of, because it's, it's very industrial um, and, you know, profit making historically, we all can be victims or all can suffer from kind of this industrial complex as well. We can all get sucked into the, the, um, the, the lies of the conservation world uh, from a very early age. And there's some, you know, there's a lot of people who, we need to be looking at, I think, not, you know, completely condemning or cancelling, but looking yeah. at with a yeah, bit more scrutiny. Um, yeah, yeah, I think definitely for, and, you know, bring up an example, part of the reason that fortress conservation as a concept, concept exists, but not quite that harshly, I think, was, you know, the, the writings of the late E.O. Wilson, um, who's mm. got some, you know, fascinating and really important ideas like the biophilia hypothesis. Um, mm. which is the idea, you know, that we're all meant to evolutionarily meant to love uh, and protect nature, but also his writing then led on to this very separatist idea of you know, mm. us and them um, when it comes to land use and, and protection, and this very mm. protectionist yeah. view. Um, so definitely we need to be looking at, at those people under a bigger lens. Um, mm. Indigenous people are often called the true conservationists, um, quite interestingly mm. that a lot of indigenous languages don't actually have a word for conservation because it's just yeah. part of their their life and their history and how they live um mm -hmm. so they don't really need to call it anything um but mm. a lot of non-indigenous people do usually call them the the true conservationists and it's it's very true that they're obviously the best um groups of people to protect and steward nature and the land that they've uh, guarded and uh, looked after for thousands of years um mm -hmm. obviously we've talked about all the horrific abuse over the years that they've suffered you mentioned the creation of the national parks in the u.s to sort of game yeah. reserve continued game reserve management in inverted commas uh on mm. the african continent and in, in asia um do you mm -hmm. think that people evicting indigenous and local people from their ancestral homeland ever truly believe their actions are actually helping wildlife or do you think it just kind of boils down to blatant racism and, and greed yeah um well i i thought we we briefly touched on this when you were talking about that wwf yeah. guy in your area um and yeah I, funny that you mentioned that actually because i also had a bit of a run-in with wwf but this was at cop 26 in the green what was dubbed the green zone oh, yeah. so did you know about the different zones that they had there i um, i do but i i doubt many of my listeners would um I okay yeah um so, yeah, so the blue zone was it was where the negotiations were taking place and where it was like you know very official the world leaders were there and where they were really like hashing over the the real like nitty gritty policies and everything and yeah. that was that was quite difficult to get in there i didn't i didn't go in there 
and survival also didn't go in there actually we made like a deliberate um decision to not to not formally participate in cop 26 because we didn't want to legitimize it when so many people we work with were excluded from it so many voices um mm. but um the green zone was supposed to be the kind of civil society area where like you know businesses could showcase their what they were doing to kind of turn green and where activists would go etc etc but it was a complete greenwash i mean it was literally car companies banks oh, yeah. like heavily polluting industries like with stalls like as if it was a careers fair it was awful and i was i was so, getting so angry walking through there anyway i came i went upstairs and i saw a wwf stall so I started chatting to them and I was just getting so angry. I was trying to remain calm. I was literally like blood boiling. And I spoke to the guy there and I was like, you know, I'm really disgusted. Like, do you know what you've been doing? I didn't tell him I was from survival as I thought better just to pretend to be an innocent survivor. Yeah. Um, and he, he said to me, I didn't know about any of these abuses until I until after I started working at WWF a year ago or something. Mm. And it's kind of similar to what you said that guy said. I like I think a lot of people who work for them and a lot of people who are in the conservation industry, yeah, I think they genuinely believe they're doing good. They don't know what's going on or they just believe that like the way they're approaching it will help people. Um, and I think that they have, yeah, they've really been kind of wrapped up in this fortress conservation narrative it, you know it's really hard to unlearn a lot of these things when you've been growing up with them for a while and also Definitely. just kind of they're so legitimized by like everybody you know whenever we kind of call out David Attenborough or Leonardo DiCaprio like people are really shocked and they find it really hard to kind of come to terms with the fact that people who have done many and as you say like I'm not saying that like you know yeah, I know that some people have kind of like done a lot to like amplify and um, kind of raise awareness about climate change. But, you know, they're also approaching it in the wrong way. And I think it's hard for people to wrap their head around this like nuance. Mm -hmm. um, but I would also say that some people are blatantly racist and just literally after profit. Like, I think WWF has an ulterior agenda, you know, they're accepting they, they have corporate partnerships with a lot of these very companies who are carbon offsetting, who continue to pursue really damaging projects for the climate and who are stealing, kind of involved in stealing indigenous lands and, and they're facilitating that. So I, I think there are people, there are members of these companies, sorry, of these NGOs and within this industry who know what they're doing. Um, and then there's also some that don't. And um, yeah, there's Fiore Longo, who's the head of our conservation campaign. She she often quotes, she often has this great quote from Martin Luther King about um, basically how he's like, he, he's been deeply disappointed with the white moderates actually, in, in some ways more than the Ku Klux Klan or these like deeply racist people who, who, who really disappoint him is like, those who kind of act as if they're in solidarity or kind of appear to be like liberals and then actually kind of don't really offer meaningful support and are just like propping up the status quo. And I think that's really interesting because that's kind of where the where the conservation industry lies. It's like this this very 
difficult nuanced place where you know they're not they're not like oil and gas companies it's not it's not kind of easy to see who's the bad guy when we're talking about this issue it's actually a lot more difficult but in some ways that's actually way more dangerous because it's harder to kind of identify who's doing what wrong and how and why and I just thought that I just think that that quote which I can't remember off the top of my head exactly by, by Martin Luther King I just think it's a great one because it it kind of identifies why like yeah we really as you were saying really need to be scrutinizing and kind of challenging and critiquing people that we that might think that they're doing something good but ultimately yeah it's quite um can be quite dangerous mm, yeah I I can't remember the exact quote either but I've, I've read Do you know what I'm talking about though which yeah, one I, I know the quote and I think um yeah quite a few yeah. people listening will because it's kind of um sometimes not all the time I do get you know a few extra listeners per episode but mostly I've got quite a dedicated audience who you know exist in their own echo chambers and, and bubbles and and that mm. quote I think gets passed around quite a lot um mm. among the people that I spend time with and that I know um mm. There's a few things to. Well, oh, sorry. Go on. Go on. Oh no, I was just going to say that. What the just quickly the point that you say about echo chambers and bubbles is like a really important one as well because that's basically what we're doing when we're challenging the like good guys. It's like we can do better, and we we should kind of you know as you say, it doesn't necessarily mean cancelling people or whatever because it's all for us to like do this work and unlearn these like narratives we've learned, but also really important to yeah not take anything at face value and just just because we're kind of all like on the left or whatever doesn't mean we shouldn't like explore kind of yeah like challenge each other and think about like the ways in which we're perpetuating these things yeah absolutely um i think there's just a couple of points i wanted to pull out first of all massive respect to you for walking through the green zone and not just screaming <laughs> Um, because I was sent, everything uh, yeah I was sent photos by friends of mine and yeah it was just, so just one massive so advert bad. the entire conference yeah was really just one massive advert um yeah and yeah just unbelievable I mean I've known for several years but it's just unbelievable to me and it will always be unbelievable that the WWF have uh you know shareholders they share um with Coca-Cola and other mm. massive very very heavily polluting organization yeah. uh, Unilever for example and you know yeah um, Unilever is another one yeah massive uh yeah just incredibly damaging groups um and I mean it is yeah, no, I was just gonna say quickly that they'll, they'll yeah. like you know post on social media about plastic pollution I think they had a whole campaign about plastic pollution WWF and then mm. literally their corporate partner is Coca-Cola so it just yeah. doesn't make sense it's a it's a massive oxymoron. I've actually I've studied their plastic pollution campaign as part of a media module last year um, on really storytelling mean. and sort of effective uh, advertising, basically um, from mm. a conservation perspective. And yeah. that's what they that's why so many people don't know because they're so good at advert advertising. They pay people <laughs> a lot of money to to do it. Yeah, because they get so much money. They have a and lot of funding. Really, really. Um, sorry to say but it is really good it's like yeah. scarily good um yeah. like some of their imagery and the sort of uh, digital artwork that they produce is mm. amazing and yeah. you know it was one of one of the things that probably would have compelled me to join them if i didn't yeah. know about this stuff and, no, no, absolutely. um 
yeah, which I think a lot of people stumble over. Um, mm. It's quite a hard pill to swallow when you start reading about your childhood conservation heroes actually being quite racist and sometimes outright cruel. Um, yeah. I quite, for various uni stuff last term, I, I researched quite heavily into the investigation and um, work that some people have been doing into Diane Fossey's torture of local hunters. And mm. I was just incredibly moved to to learn more because it was just, you know, obviously um, I've grown up with uh, gorillas in the mist on uh, on my bookshelf and, you know, in my head and, mm. and her work and her writing. Yeah. Um, just to find out that um, she did horrific things to local communities part mm. of, as part of her research. You know, obviously, you know, again, she's done some great conservation work and she's, mm. um, you know, met a quite nasty end that I wouldn't wish on anyone but will never detract from the fact that this investigation showed the um I, you could almost call them atrocities it was it was um yeah not nice at all to learn about those things are very hard pills to swallow when you've grown up yeah, with those people um in your life and I think more people you know I've taken the steps to read books and, and watch films and learn about them I think more people should be doing that more people should be yeah spending their time um maybe not watching netflix sitcoms and starting yeah. watching some <laughs> conservation films um yeah. and is that could you kind of recommend uh i guess a couple of books and maybe some films that my listeners can mm. use to look further into the topics that we discussed today mm. yeah um well one like one that comes to mind most is um the big conservation lie by Mordecai mm. Ogada. He's a Kenyan uh like ecologist that consults for survival and he's written a really great book about conservation the conservation industry in Africa and particularly in Kenya um which I would recommend. Um he he also has we've got videos of him and there are more online I'm sure that you could find and he's just a great speaker like honestly so engaging uh and he he also spoke at the Arland our nature con con uh, conference that we held um and yeah I would maybe say I I've not read this book personally myself but I've been recommended it um it's actually in French, so I'm not sure that's going to help many people, but I think there are English translations. It's L'invention du colonialisme vert, so The Invention of Green Colonialism by Guillaume Blanc. He's mm. a, a French lecturer. Um, I think he lectures at Rennes University in France, but he, he's written heavily on like green colonialism and stuff. Um, and then maybe just like, well, we have a medium blog, Survival Does, and we've got some articles on there by indigenous peoples about like the situation they're facing. And I think it's obviously just super important to read what indigenous peoples are saying themselves are happening. So um, yeah, for example, last year we published a few that, that might be interesting to for your listeners to look at. Um, and then in terms of films, um, a film that I saw, I think it was in 2020, which really, I was, I've still stays with me a lot is, it's called Human Zoos. Um, it, Human Zoos, America's Forgotten History of Scientific Racism. And I think you can watch it on YouTube and it's, it's just so shocking. It really goes into like the history of, um, well, human zoos, which were basically when so-called anthropologists in kind of the 19th and 18th century and 20th, and 20th century, I think, um 
kind of went to other countries and like kidnapped indigenous peoples and various people and then put them on display in like zoos in the western world which is just like absolutely horrific but it's really interesting because it kind of goes into that history and also a lot about like who the founders of a lot of these like current day conservation NGOs were so like the WCS that was founded by a eugenicist um, and it kind of goes into that history and I just thought that was really really interesting because I didn't know a lot of that um, so that's that's the one about human zoos and then um, I guess well Vice has a really good report on the situation with WWF as well and that's on YouTube but I'd probably just say um, well, I mean this is clearly tooting, tooting survival's trumpet but we have a lot of tribal voice videos which is our project where we get indigenous peoples to send in kind of testimonies and footage of themselves like talking about the issues that they're facing and a lot of those videos especially on conservation um are really interesting i mean you know some of them are about the abuses that they're facing but many of them also are about like how they care for the environment and how they can offer an alternative so um yeah i'd, I'd just say like if people want to check out the tribal voice videos on our website then yeah useful and also one more thing which is just that um we did ho hold that conference in marseille and you can watch it online it's on youtube on our youtube channel and that's um yeah that's got a lot of a lot of information there as well and also a lot of shoddy connections because it was so difficult to maintain some of the wi-fi connections i mean yeah it was really difficult but we did manage to hear from loads of people all over, all over the world luckily that's that's really great and that's an amazing selection some of them i have heard of some of them i i haven't obviously yet well you know vice and and buzzfeed and people like that have got current um well i say current last year and the year before um kind of investigations into the wwf situation with the backer um there's definitely you know a lot more that can be said for um watching indigenous voices on your website and this is what the episode yeah. is about at the end of the day is education and tooting your own horn so don't don't be afraid to do that <laughs> um definitely so i mean yeah. uh yeah the the big conservation lie is the first book that really opened my eyes uh personally yeah. to, to the stuff going on so i think yeah. i'd highly recommend it and and if anyone it's listening really can't awesome. can't afford a copy i'd happy to lend them mine and, and send them out because it's really um it's just such a vitally important read but um, I kind of, I think we are almost out of time, but before we finish, mm -hmm. if you're okay, we're going to do a little quick fire round. Um, yeah. I kind of think this is, you know, I've sometimes talked about really heavy topics and it's, it still allows you to kind of express your opinions, but also, um, I guess just not breaks the ice, you know, I never want to detract from the topics we've spoken about, yeah. but it's just a, a little kind of get to know know you better really yeah yeah if that's all right with you yeah sure so the first question what's your favorite animal Ooh. oh no this is quick fire it's supposed to be quick fire and I'm yeah i um, it's, okay. it's not gonna be quick fire uh okay um monkey <laughs> that's a that's a very broad speech yeah i know, <laughs> I know. Bonobo. right right bonobo monkey uh, okay so yeah they're the ones, yeah. they're like apes, right? They're the ones that... Yeah, yeah, they're like peaceable chimpanzees. Yeah, Yeah. no, that's, a, that's an excellent choice. Um, 
really interesting. It's not a quick fire. Uh, I call it a quick fire round, but it's um, oh, okay. I think I've had like one that is actually kept under a minute. Um, so okay. don't, no need to worry. I've you know got another, okay, another twenty nine that haven't. Um, <laughs> where is a place you like to go and connect with nature? Kind of the one place you feel really at home outside. Um. Well. Actually, I would say, probably say like my back garden. I know that that's kind of maybe um, not, what's the word? Yeah, a bit of an anticlimax, but I love gardening. And I just think like there's so much to be found literally in your back garden. And yeah, I feel, I just feel really relaxed when I'm kind of like digging my hands into the soil and doing some gardening. So I really enjoy, yeah, just kind of just, yeah, my garden probably. Do you have a conservation hero and now when I when I started this podcast I you know got a lot of the same answers Chris Packham David Attenborough whatnot and, um, <laughs> yeah. but just what I mean by conservation hero is just someone in your sector or your field or your sphere of um, passion and enthusiasm that you really look up to and admire and respect mm, that's a good one yeah i'm trying to think specifically i like because there's just so many indigenous peoples that we work with that i'm just so in awe of like they're just like resistance and how much they're fighting and yeah i can think off the top of my head i think like for example that there's a a guy an activist who we work with called pranab doli and he work, he's, a, he's from the Missing tribe in, they're called Missing, but like M-I-S-I-N-G uh, in India. And he lives in Kaziranga National Park. And he's just incredible. I, I'd say that he's a real conservation hero because he, he really cares about like the local wildlife and the land. And also is just fighting so hard to like have like his tribe's voices heard and his voice heard and faces a huge amount of, harassment and intimidation in India under the Modi government and from local authorities for speaking out. So I think in such adverse conditions to be able to continue his work um, and like have such a passion for nature and everything, that's really amazing. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good answer. I'm, I'm always happy when people give answers that aren't too generic. Um, it's, you know, I, I get a lot of kind of scientists who will give a, a fellow academic and you know just someone who's very working very very hard behind the scenes or an indigenous person or a communicator who just really isn't um on the on the front front page of anywhere um mm. so it's always, always uh, really nice to hear last off uh, how do you take your coffee <laughs> i don't take coffee i take tea like you <laughs> so, yeah I, i'm not a coffee drinker i i feel like yeah it doesn't sit well with me so I just drink tea and I'll, I always have an Earl Grey with oat milk. Um, that's very fair enough there's been a lot of people who haven't uh, who don't drink coffee for various reasons on the podcast um, mm. surprisingly a large amount actually I should probably look into changing, maybe the, name. Change, start changing um, the name of the <laughs> I should probably ask people first and then change the name of that particular episode um <laughs> I do drink a lot of coffee probably slightly too much um but yeah today we we ran out sadly so it's uh it's tea for me um so I think we can wrap it up there it's been a bit mm. longer than I I thought it would but it's been really really important to um 
elaborate on all these all these points and these topics and i'm really going to push it wherever i can as i as i do with all the episodes but especially with this one try and get it out to as many people as possible and particularly certain individuals who i know will really benefit from from the education and the points you've raised and and the questions you've so brilliantly answered um before we go would you like to no it's it's an absolute pleasure and i mean before we go do you want to kind of quickly just say where people can find um survival's work and what's your most kind of what's your online handles and and website and things like that yeah well we're we're on instagram um at survival international we're on twitter at survival and we're on facebook um and we're on youtube as well i think it's survival international on youtube um yeah and then just our website basically we've got a whole page on decolonizing conservation we've got a page on what what we call the big green lie which was which is the 30 by 30 information with 30 by 30 on there and also niche-based solutions so i just say please check out our website and on social media and yeah and see what we've got on there perfect well thank you so much again it's been a pleasure and really important yeah it's been really great thank you george thanks again to lola for taking time to speak to me today all the links to survival international's platforms will be in the description down below as conservationists ecologists environmentalists or just people in general who live on this planet on planet earth and and care about the people and the wildlife who we share the land with we have a lot to learn and a lot to unlearn and i really hope this podcast is a little step in bringing you closer to that unlearning there's a range of books and other content that I'll be sharing over the next few weeks on both my Instagram and my Twitter. I'd really encourage you to all engage with this as I think that if you're someone who's either working in the sector already or strongly would like to go into it in the future, these are topics that should really be always at the forefront of your mind. There can really in my mind be no true conservation and no true peace in wildlife and biodiversity hotspots and and areas of of beauty without respect and working with indigenous people and the people who live there. So in today's episode, I'm featuring Ekoa Coffee. This coffee company is owned by Native Americans operating on formerly Kiowa indigenous land and has core values of fair payment, land stewardship, respect and raising indigenous voices. Their coffee is organic and direct trade and a portion of profits from each bag of coffee sold is passed directly to native non-profits and programs. All the links to their website will be as ever in the description down below. Coffee with Conservationists is now available on Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple Podcasts as well as a few more streaming services. As ever, thank you all so much for listening. I've been your host, George Steedwin-Jones. And this is Coffee with Conservationists.